Well, this section starts with wives be submissive. Our world might consider this the language of oppression, and this section ends with the language of women are the weaker vessel. Our world might consider this the language of male superiority. And so a section like this that's in the Bible, that's in the New Testament, well, it might be a red, red, sorry, a red rag, not just to a feminist bull, but to many people in our society, possibly even some of us here. And so when we read a section of the scriptures like this, are you embarrassed by a section like this? Does it perhaps even infuriate you? Do you wonder, does this view have any room in the 21st century? Have you heard people say consistently recently, this is the 21st century, as a way of objecting to, say, what's in the Bible? And what is meant by that, I think when people say, this is the 21st century, uh, rather than a comment of self-evident chronological reality, what they mean is that there's absence. There's absent the language of gender empowerment or of agency or of self-realisation. You know, why not start with something like, wives, be whatever you want to be. That's what we want to hear in our world. And why not end with a declaration of female strength? I am strong, I am invincible, I am woman. Well, the truth of the Bible is never more demanding than when it challenges us. When it challenges us as Christians and when it challenges the world in which we live. And as hard as this might be, coming to grips and reading a section of the Bible like this, I think this is a good thing. Because this is more than simply an opportunity to confirm our pre-existing ideas about marriage, life and God. This is an opportunity for God to speak to us. Because we're hearing God speak to us when we're challenged. When the ideas of our world and our society are challenged. And so let me start by saying that this language of we is you know this language of this is the 21st century I think recognizes something that's pretty helpful when people say this uh, they're recognizing that the moment that we live in today is different from the moment that people lived in 70 years ago in the 1950s 100 or 2000 years ago and what's recognised by that is the fact that we all have a cultural bias. We all have a lens and a filter that we read things through. However, if we are a Christian, we believe that the Bible is not simply culturally conditioned by those who existed and wrote it, say, 2,000 years ago. We don't, we don't think it's simply trapped within its culture. We think it exists in a culture. It was written by first century people. But we believe its message is not just for those in the first century. We believe it's transcultural. Now, often the Bible is understood as simply being an intracultural thing, just for those who lived 200 years ago, when it suited society a little more conveniently to be closer to what the Bible said, or it was just for those who lived in the first century. But the Bible is not an intercultural text, it's a transcultural text. I want to show you um, a, 
intra-cultural text. It's called The Good Wife's Guide. It's from a 1950s home economics textbook. I don't, now, I don't think it's come up on the screen. Here is what it instructs a wife to do. It says, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. Secondly, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so that you'll be refreshed before he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking. Clear away the clutter. Make a last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives. Gather up school books, toys, papers, etc. Then run a dust cloth over the table. This is from a 1950s home economics textbook. This is, this is a document that's caught in a certain culture, a certain culture of the 1950s. But this is not what we read in the scriptures. What we read in the scriptures is a reality that spans across all cultures and all times. A year before that manual for how a wife should prepare for her husband to come home, it was published in 1950, the feminist Simone de Beauvoir published in 1949 her book called The Second Sex, which was to become this foundational book for the feminist movement and really helped shape the way in which women were understood in Western society. She wrote in that book that one is not born but rather one becomes a woman, meaning that gender roles, what a woman should do or what a man should do, are just constructs, uh, socially designed things imposed upon people. And then this book was picked up by another author, a woman called Betty Freon. And Freon conducted this survey of her classmates 15 years after they graduated from university. And what she found out from this survey was that many, many of these uh, former classmates of hers were unhappy as housewives. And so she began uh, researching and wrote the, the book The Feminine Mystique, which was published in 1963. And in this book, um, Ferridan challenged the widely shared belief that in the 1950s, fulfilment as a woman had only one definition, that is, to be a housewife mother. Freedom put her finger on this level of discontent that existed within American women. And then a couple of years later, Kate Millett published her book six years later, Sexual Politics, in 1970, and explored the reason for this discontent. The reason, she said, for this discontent that so many women felt in America was the problem of men having authority over women. And so freedom from male authority was needed. So feminism was birthed. This was joined with freedom from biology, from the pill, freedom from restraint with a sexual revolution, freedom from economic dependence with working women. And by the late 19 and by the late 90s, this vision of what a woman could be of a free woman, a woman with agency and self-fulfilled, was captured by the HBO TV hit, Sex and the City. It really was the fruition of the academic work that was done in the 50s, 60s and 70s, finding what it looked like for women in the 1990s. And there, 
Carrie Bradshaw, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, she is not a woman who is constrained. She is not a woman who's restrained by any person, let alone any man. She's a free woman. And at the height of her freedom, as an empowered woman, she says this, the most important relationship you can have is with yourself. This is the 21st century. It's a 21st century we're living in. The most important relationship you can have is with yourself. It's interesting, Sex and the City is undergoing um, a little bit of critique from uh, a number of uh, corners. Uh, and one of the critiques of Sex and the City is that the way in which the four women in the show treat those from a lower socioeconomic background who can't afford the you know, shoes and makeup and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, the portrayal of these liberated women, so-called, the portrayal of them in the show goes and shows their ability to oppress other women. You see, because the problem isn't patriarchy. This is what the Bible would say. The problem isn't matriarchy. The problem isn't authority or power imbalance. The Bible says the problem at the heart of society is that we, in our very selves, in the depths of our hearts, are morally and spiritually corrupt. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The Bible says the fundamental problem with humanity, the fundamental problem with society is that we're lovers of ourselves. See, we live in the Me Too age because it was first a me-first age. And the Bible makes no distinction between the capacity of either male or female for sin. And so we come to read this section of the Bible with this cultural lens, the cultural lens of what our world has told us about what is right and good and what a woman should do as much as we come to this text thinking what a man should do, what is right and good for him to do, we also come to this text with a profound cynicism that exists within many structures. Uh, Just recently, there's a cynicism, I think, that resides against those in politics, against those in banking, against the clergy and the church. And so there's a huge amount of resistance to any form of institution or any form of structure. And the institution of marriage and family, I think, is also affected by this. But when Peter wrote these words to these Christians in the first century, he wasn't writing from some detached sense of naive idealism. He wasn't speaking about picture-perfect relationships there in glossy magazines. He was writing to men and women 
who were suffering, men and women who were persecuted and who felt the reality of the society around them. Because being married is not necessarily an easy experience. And Peter understands that. And Peter understands the reality of our world. Uh, It only occurred to me that uh, Peter was married himself. And so as we read these words, as distinct from the Apostle Paul, we read of a man who knew about marriage. We know from the Gospels that his mother-in-law was sick. Uh, We know from the book of Acts that he would have been probably away from his wife uh, a large amount of time. Last week, Peter spoke to the reality of human institutions. And we saw last week in chapter 2 that the Christian person was to be submissive to those institutions. Now, that's an easy... uh, Well, perhaps that's easy for us to understand for us to be submissive to the Australian government. But as Peter writes to these Christians, he's asking them to be submissive to the form of government that is oppressing them and is going to continue to oppress them and that is, in fact, going to take some of their lives. He indicates to slaves that they are to submit to their masters. And so this whole discussion has been alluded to in his introduction is not simply isolated for women that they are the only people that must act in submissive contexts. No, this is, a, this is located in a wider discussion, a wider discussion of how Christians relate to the state, of how Christians relate to perhaps a, uh, an equivalent employer in the 21st century, but also how wives are to relate to their husbands. It's also interesting, uh, sorry, it's also, um, I think, worth pointing out that Peter doesn't tack on his discussion of marriage and husbands and wives simply on the back end of how he's spoken about slaves and masters. No, Peter pauses his discussion at the end, uh, at, uh, at the end of our passage from last week there in verse 21 to verse 25, and he says this in verse 21, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. See, the issue in Peter's mind isn't social stability, as he calls on these Christians to submit to the Roman Empire, which is oppressing them. The issue isn't social stability. The issue is Christian witness. Because mistreatment is an opportunity, Peter says, to show what is intrinsically Christian. He ties it to Jesus. He says, Christ has suffered for you. Why? Because there's your example of what it is to be a Christian in this world. There's your example of what it is to live under the tyranny of the Roman Empire, which had a level of hostility to Christianity that is nothing like the hostility that we might experience in the 21st century here in Australia. In fact, the Apostle Paul also picks up on this. He says it's been gifted to you not only to believe, but this is also your gift to suffer for him. It's a gift of suffering, the fellowship of his sufferings, that Peter invites 
these Christians to share in. Because here's the model for our life. Christ resisted evil and did good. He submitted to his father, which which in the end meant that he submitted to the cruel and wicked authorities. He was publicly shamed but was silent. How did he do that? Well, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. And it's very important we understand that there's this discussion of who Jesus is and how he suffered for us as the model and the motivation for how we are to live as Christian people, both in terms of our relation to the state but also uh, in, in the context of marriage. And that's where Peter picks things up there in chapter 3, verse 1. Because the Roman Empire, for all its dominance and power, was under constant threat of uprising and insurrection. And so when the Christian gospel started to take hold and Christian people were converted to this new faith, the question was being asked, is Christianity going to be any different from all the other sects who thought that they had the truth and because they had the truth, they could undermine the government who didn't have the truth? But, Paul, but Peter doesn't say that. He says, don't give them ammo, even though they oppress us. Even though they persecute us, submit to them. And it could have been, and I think this is why Peter does dedicate six verses to women, Uh, it could have been that many women were converted early on in Christianity. They were the early adopters of the Christian faith. Um, And this meant that, that it would place them Uh, in a situation of potential conflict with their husband. In fact, one uh, scholar writes this. She says, In Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the God of her husband. The husband and society would perceive the wife's worship of Christ Jesus as rebellion, especially if she worshipped Christianity exclusively. Here we have the issue. The Christian women are becoming Christians, their husbands aren't, and so what is Peter's instruction to them? You've got the truth, women. You don't need to submit to the tyranny of your husband because he doesn't know the truth, no. Have a look there in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any one of them do not believe the word, they may be won over with words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. See the context here? The context and the priority in Peter's mind is Christian mission. Here is what's important to Peter. Here's what was important to the apostles. It wasn't the revolution of a hostile power over them that they sought to overthrow. This wasn't how the early Christians operated. They they weren't seeking to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were seeking to transform it, husband by husband, person by person. And here Peter offers some advice to those who are married but married to those who don't share in their faith. And what does he say? He says, 
Wives, your husband did not marry Billy Graham because the nature of your evangelism isn't to preach sermons to your husband. I know there are a number of women at our church here at Point Church who long for their husbands to wake up to the Christian gospel, who have prayed for their husbands for tens of years, for decades. And Peter's encouragement here is to live out the good news with respect and love. Because very often I think there's even just a pragmatic element here when a husband is told he must... Some wives can finish this for me. When a husband's told he must, he usually won't, right? And so here Peter encourages these wives in this very difficult situation, such that their demeanour and not their words may be their most powerful instrument. I don't think Peter is saying here that uh, a wife uh, who's married to an unbelieving husband can never speak about their faith, But their most powerful instrument, Peter is saying here, is not the sermon that they can preach on the way to the shops, but on their lives and on their godliness. You notice there in verse 1, it says, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. I think that refers back to chapter 2, verse 21, where it speaks about Christ leaving us an example. Because why in the 21st century... Would a woman who is married to a man submit to him? Well, why would a Christian submit to a government? See, the grounds, the reason that a wife might submit to a husband, that a Christian might submit to a government, is grounded not in the government and not in the wife, not in the husband, but is grounded in Christ. See, Christian submission is primarily to God and secondarily to others. This is why a woman woman can submit in the first place. Not because she's under some male tyranny or some male oppressive structure. She can submit because she is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves for whose sake? To keep your husband happy? No. No. For the Lord's sake. Not for your culture's sake. For the Lord's sake. And submission is freely given. It's not a submission here that, is, uh, that the husband is instructed to demand from his wife. But it's a submission that's given. A Christian person is free to submit in government, employment and in, mass, and in marriage because our dignity does not come from our relationship with the state. Our dignity does not come from our relationship with our employer. Our dignity does not even come from our relationship with our husband or wife. Our dignity comes from Christ. It's in Jesus. And it's in his example of suffering that we find our dignity. I think feminism defines a woman's goal and this is in broad terms, and there are exceptions to this, but I think in broad terms, feminism defines a woman's goal as self-fulfillment and therefore every, and freedom from every authority. But the Christian person defines 
themselves in their obedience to God. And that is our freedom. The wife's submission is not based on the superiority of the husband, but on the empowerment that is a gift from Christ. So what does this look like? Well, I think it looks like lots of different things for lots of different people. I think it's an attitude of a wife rather than an action. It's not to say that a wife is mindless or passive. It's not that her husband is always right. You'll notice that there are no clear commands about what this looks like. This is up for a husband and a wife to work out amongst themselves, to come to one mind uh, on this, regardless of what society or what others might say. Every marriage is different, and so in each marriage, submission will be expressed differently. But let me be clear by saying what this is not saying. It's not saying that all women must submit to all men. It's not saying that a wife must do everything her husband says. It's not and definitely not saying that a wife must endure domestic violence or abuse. No, it's not saying these things. It's saying that there is an attitude because of a person's relationship to Christ that they are willing to place themselves into the hands of another. And this is hard. This is hard because we crave control. But this is not what the apostle is calling the wife to. It's not to control, but to submission. Peter goes on to speak about beauty, and I'm conscious of our time, and so I'll have to be briefer than I had hoped. But here, Peter is talking about a beauty that comes, as cliched as it might sound, from that which is within, an unfading beauty Uh, Beauty is one of those things that keeps changing. Uh, Beauty in the Renaissance period was very different to that of the Victorian period. The Renaissance period uh, valued what is often described as the voluptuous woman. Um, By the the 1800s, beautiful women were said to have tiny waists. By the 1920s, Uh, They had the boyish looks of the flapper era. By the 1960s, it was the twiggy look of the androgynous body. Now you can buy injectables for beauty down at Breakfast Point on the beauty salon. Injectables here, that's what it says. So, you know, beauty is this changing, uh, is this changing perception. And uh, I think what's very helpful for us is that Peter is speaking here of a beauty and of attractiveness that will not fade, that will not change from era to era. Peter says there in verse 3 that your beauty doesn't come from that which you put on yourself, but from that which is within. And he indicates that what is truly beautiful there is in verse 4, a gentle and quiet spirit. Does this mean that women ought not to be noisy uh, and all women must be quiet? No, Peter's talking about gentleness here, a gentleness of spirit. Gentleness is, in fact, not just um, a trait that women ought to display. It is, in fact, one that all Christians display. It's a fruit of the spirit. 
Uh, it's not simply here that Peter is speaking of a Victorian notion of being ladylike, but Peter is speaking of being Christ-like. As Jesus himself says, I am gentle and lonely of heart. Women have the gift, women have the opportunity to give their gift, to give a gift of gentleness towards their husband. This is a supernatural gift given by the spirit. It's not a personality trait. And the gentleness, I think, has a direction here. It has a direction to the husband because I think Peter appreciates there is a type of power that a wife might have in a marriage. Peter's insight here, I think, refers to the words of a wife that can be crippling, a barbed word. But here, Peter is encouraging a gentleness of restrained power, of perhaps a comment withheld that might be true, but is unnecessary. Why? Because the primary audience of a wife is her husband. No. Verse 4, the primary audience of a wife is God. You see, this kind of beauty is not just helpful for a marriage, it is, but it's of great worth in God's sight. And I'll skip the section about Sarah and Abraham. We'll move on to husband's. Uh, here Peter goes for the jugular, jugular in, for the husbands. He says there in verse 7, and we'll finish up here, that husbands in the same way must be considerate of their wives. That is not simply thoughtful, although I think there's an aspect of that. That's not simply opening the car door. Literally, the phrase there is dwelling according to knowledge. Peter's talked about knowledge in the book so far. It's more than seeking to understand your wife, as vital as that is. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he spoke of when you lived in ignorance, when you didn't have knowledge. You see, the very nature of becoming a Christian is to receive a knowledge, not just of yourself and of God, but putting those two things together about what life is all about. And here Peter is encouraging husbands to live in view of eternity, in view of God in the middle of their marriage. That marriage is not simply a piece of paper. It's not simply an economic relationship. It is a context for worship. And how does the husband worship his God in marriage? He worships worships him by honouring her. Uh, It's translated in the NIV there as respect, but it's a stronger word than respect. You respect the decision of a referee, but you do not honour a referee. Peter says, you honour your wife. What does it mean to honour her? Well, he tells us in the next section, she's an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. As a married man, your wife is one of the king's women. And we honour our wives and we seek to honour our wives because Christ has honoured them. That word there um, also has the connotation of being precious. Um, And precious things are given a special place. 
So a, a husband worships his God, Peter is saying, by his honour, his respect, and the preciousness that he displays to his wife. When it speaks of her as a weaker vessel, I don't think that this is uh, in any way suggesting that the woman is weaker morally, intellectually, or spiritually. I think Peter's just acknowledging two realities. Firstly, and I think this is very hard to dispute, that in general terms, men are stronger than women. I think uh, when he speaks of vessel, he's he's speaking in the language of body there. Uh, so he's acknowledging that there's, uh, this, this woman is precious and there is a physical weakness. Uh, but also I think it acknowledges the social vulnerability that a wife places herself in when she chooses to submit to a husband. And so here the apostle makes very clear that there is absolutely no uh, room in Christian marriage for the exploitation of women, for the abuse of women, either physical or psychological. It leaves no room for domineering. um, Women are weaker in Peter's mind, not because they are weak, but because uh, they, well, I mean, earlier on in the letter, Peter says that all people are weak. Uh, that all men are like grass. And so the husband's role there is to honour his wife. There's lots more to say about this, but I'll try and kind of tie it all together. We started off by reading that section there from 1 Peter, a language which might be um, heard in our world as language of oppression and superiority. But I hope we've been able to see that this isn't the language of oppression and it's not the language of superiority. It's the language of a woman knowing her dignity in Christ and being able to submit on that basis. And this section ends with a husband's call to value his wife as a precious gift and to honour her. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help those of us who are married, and that you would help all of us to honour marriage. Father, we know that uh, our world is hostile to these ideas, and we also know, Father, uh, that we, if we are married, have made many mistakes and are weak and frail in these matters. And so I ask, Father, that you would help us, that you would strengthen the marriages of our church, that you would allow wives to submit. We ask, Father, that you'd be with those wives who do not have believing husbands. We ask that we would be able to support, love and care for them. We ask also, Father, that husbands in this church would honour their wives, that their wives would be precious and that you would be glorified in this relationship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.